There have been many so-called mystics in history, but none more famous, cantankerous, and notorious than Rasputin. Grigory Rasputin was born into a peasant family in Siberia, Russia around 1869. And after failing to become a monk, uh, Rasputin became a wanderer and eventually entered the court of Tsar Nicholas II, and uh, mainly because of his alleged healing powers. Um, he became uh, empowered by the Tsar's wife, Alexandra, and, uh, uh, and ended up going through the uh, Russian Revolution, uh, met a very brutal death at the hands of uh, assassins in 1916. This is Greg Grasso, and welcome to Chapter One. Today I've got the pleasure of talking with Raymond Curry, the author of a fascinating novel, Rasputin's Shadow. Hi, Raymond. Good to talk with you. Hi, Greg. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've studied, uh, uh, I, I study history. I love history. Um, Rasputin is a, is a character that uh, uh, that I got interested in many years ago. Um, uh, Mainly because of his uh, his presence and uh, what he turned himself into, uh, and how he got into the court uh, with the czar. Um, well, before we get into the book, um, Raymond, would you? I think most people know a little bit about Rasputin. Uh, give us give us a little uh, synopsis, a little sketch of Rasputin. Well, uh, like you said, he he was um, he was a very troubled character even from from uh, his early days. He was uh, he was he he grew up in a, penniless um, and was uh, was was uh, involved in petty crime from a very young age. Um, villagers um, from where the village he came from remember him as being uh, uh, really a a. a a dark, brooding, um, unhappy character, and eventually he was chased out of his village because of all these, uh, because of all the the activities he kept, uh, you know, the horse uh, thieving and uh, and being very lecherous with women and stuff. And he was he was uh, he was uh, kicked out of town basically, and he ended up wandering around and, and seemed to find some kind of peace or some kind of motivation in a very distant monastery in Siberia, <laughs> which I kind of use as a kicking off point. Um, in, in, in my story, in my version of, of, of what he went through, and um, he he hooked up with this uh, with with a, with a, a small sect uh, that had quite kind of bizarre beliefs, and uh, and he was able to kind of use those to manipulate his way up the chain uh, of society, and eventually made it to Petersburg, which, you know, what we now call Saint Petersburg, um, and the and the and the court, and his. His key, the key factor in this rise to power was that at the same time this was a very, very superstitious society, and um, and the 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 Tsar and Tsarina had a had long tried to have a a, a male a, a male heir, a son that they 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 tried and tried and had a lot of daughters, <laughs> and the Tsarina was trying all kinds of mystics and and uh, kind of foreign uh, um, occult. Um, uh, workers to, to 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 help her achieve this, and finally, when she did have a son, he turned out to be a hemophiliac. He was at the risk of death all the time, and the doctors could do nothing to cure him. Mm-hmm. And Rasputin showed up at a time when this boy was ill, and he uh, he was let in to see the boy, and he said he put his hands on his head and he pronounced 
him, you know, he said he'd be fine the next day. And actually, he found the boy was fine the next day. And this happened several times. And with each event, his reputation with the Tsarina was just cemented as this miracle worker who would keep the heir to the throne alive, which enabled him to do anything he wanted. I mean, he just uh, went berserk in, in Russian society. He he bedded uh, countless aristocratic women. He he uh, he took people's money for favors. He he put uh, people he liked in in positions of power. He I mean he was an incredible influence for a man who could barely string together a, a coherent sentence. Hmm. And uh, ultimately, he was very much involved in um, in the in 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 World War One in the way you know, the Russians were were at war with the Germans and. Uh, what we only recently discovered, actually, was that a British agent was uh, was the person to put the final bullet in his head the night that they killed him. Mm. Yeah, the, the British yeah. agent who wanted the Brit the Brits did not want Rasputin's influence um, over the Tsar. Who uh, Rasputin was pushing the Tsar to make peace with the Germans, which would have meant that the German the the German army would have been diverted entirely to the Western Front to confront the British, and um, it was in the British interest to keep. The Eastern Front going, so um, and that was what ultimately contributed to to Rasputin's death. Yeah, yeah, very, very uh, uh, strange. Um, well, well, this book is not only about Rasputin. It, uh, you've got a uh, you've got a story in contemporary times about a retired New York City uh, high school teacher, uh, Leo Sokolov. Uh, mm-hmm. And then uh, we've got this. Uh, we've got this FBI agent Sean Riley coming in. We've got the J, uh, KGB and the Rus- Russian mafia all on the hunt for this guy. So, what's really going on in the book? <laughs> well, you know, I I write contemporary thrillers, and yes. um, a lot of the. I mean, this is my sixth book, and four of them have had a big historic backstory, which I kind of have fun. I, I what I like to do is to find something in history that really interests me. Um, that can have resonance today and use it as a, a um, uh, you know, fictionalize it, use it as a, as a springboard for something that, you know, one possible explanation for it. So, for instance, with The Last Templar, there was, there was always this intrigue about what was the, the lost secret of the Templars. You know, they were supposed to be immensely wealthy. We never found any of their wealth. How did they become so powerful so quickly? So I used that question, which we don't really have an answer for, as a as a launchpad for my story, what if they had, <clears throat> what if they had that? What if that was why they became powerful? And what would that object or that knowledge or whatever it is they had? How could that affect our world today? So with Rasputin, I I took this this um, this intriguing question about about his powers and and how he was able to achieve what he was what he achieved. And, and use that as, again, as the launchpad for my story today. What if there was something else that we didn't know about? What if that was the secret to his power? And how would that be, what, what effect would that have on our world today if it were to fall into the wrong hands? Um, so Sean Riley is back, um, as is Tess. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm throwing him under the, the, uh, the bus to the steamroller again. <laughs> God, yeah, you are. Um, he loves me. He does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, um, okay. There's uh, there's this psychotronic weapon. Yep. What the heck is that, man? 
Um, what is that? <laughs> it's just a big fancy word. You know, we like to come up with big fancy words to make it, to make all my research sound really interesting and and and, and heavy duty. It's actually no psychedelic. It's you know, it's actually it seems to be a word that the Russians concocted. Um, April of this year, the Russian defense minister um, gave a, a gave us made made a statement, and he acknowledged that the the Russian defense forces were actively researching psychotronic weapons, that this was uh, greenlit by, by, by Putin, um, which was the first time that such an announcement had been made by, by, by the Kremlin. Uh, psycho- so psychotronic, it's, I mean, so it's, it's basically, it's, it's Manchurian candidate mind control. It's, it's how, can, how are we able to manipulate um, people's emotions or people's actions from a distance? Um, how can we, what do we know about how the brain works? And uh, you know, this is something that's been around for 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 thousands of years. This was re- this was researched. Uh, I think the first records of, of of research into brain entrainment go back to 200 BC. Hmm. But it's only in the 30s and 40s when when um, when the technology to map the brain became uh, became available that that we, that scientists were really able to to start and see the effects of. Uh, I mean, you know, if you think about how um, strobe lights can affect epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. one. That's one aspect of of entrainment. How beats and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, different frequencies can impact different regions of the brain and and turn up certain certain areas in it. So you know, can you feel uh, angrier, more more violent, calmer, uh, hungrier? Um, all kinds of reactions that can be triggered. Um, and this research was was very heavily um, active during the Cold War. Uh, the CIA and the KGB had a lot of programs with some pretty bizarre names like Project Artichoke, and uh, <laughs> I mean I don't know who chooses those names, but um, uh, they had a lot of um, lot of weird stuff going on. So that's kind of what I was interested in: is what do we really know about that? What was really going on back then, and how can that be kind of extrapolated to, to today? Yeah, well, uh, the the U.S. Army has been working uh, also. You know, the United States Army has been working on on these kinds of uh, uh, techniques or uh, uh, not programs, but uh, you know they they they, uh, uh, they were playing around with LSD in the in the fifties and sixties, and exactly they've got. Uh, I read something a few months ago. They've got this uh, audio type deal that they're testing to see if they can't stun the enemy, you know, from a distance and. Um, it, it, it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating where where uh, war uh, uh, where war dynamics are going. Uh, you know, in the old days, uh, uh, the British would line up in a row <laughs> and then yeah. let themselves yeah. be shot. And now yeah. now we're we're playing around with uh, uh, with technology, which which is fascinating. I mean, it's 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 like unbelievable. Uh, what. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty pretty funny um, uh, what's going on. Anyway, um, you know, um, while reading this book, you you kind of write like a couple other authors that I uh, uh, really like, uh, David Baldacci. Um, mm-hmm. He's a pretty well known writer, and uh, he writes in little scenes, okay, like a little mini movie, and and this book came off to me uh, similar. 
where where you mm-hmm. com- compartmentalize uh, scenes and and you're able to hook it together. Um, I think you've done a, a brilliant job doing that. Um, uh, Thank you. Is, is that your technique? Uh, do you consciously do that, or does it just spill out? Uh, it, it, it's very much my technique. It's, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a very conscious effort. I, I came to writing novels from screenwriting. I, the last Templar was actually a screenplay. I wrote back in 1996, and uh, before I had agents, before I, you know, I was just starting out, it was the third thing I, I ever wrote. And uh, so when I started adapting it into a novel about uh, in about 2000, 2001, it was very much, you know, I had this 146-page screenplay that, that, that I translated, and that's kind of my storytelling technique is very visual and very cinematic. I, I love hearing from readers who always say, you know, reading this book, it felt like watching a movie. It, 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 not just in, you know, you're, you're referring to kind of the structure and the pacing of it, mm-hmm. but I, I try to go even further. I, I try to, to do it with, with my actual descriptions, with the, with, with the prose, the, with the way I'm describing stuff. I like, you know, my aim, my, my ambition is for the reader to, to feel they're actually there uh, viscerally, to the, they're watching it, they're living it. Um, which is why I always do these. Which is why I also do these historic chapters. I do these flashbacks to 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 actually live through the historic chapters. If a character is telling another character, oh, maybe this thing is from back then when this and that happened, rather than have them talk about it, it's it's also a movie technique, isn't it? Show don't tell. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than have talking heads, let's watch it. So I, I I feel the same way in the book. Rather than have two characters. Talk and that started with the Last Templar. The, the screenplay had these big, epic, historic scenes uh, set during the Crusades and during the the, the, the journey of this group of Templars. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I when I wrote the book, it 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 just felt really natural to for me to tell the story that way. And that's something I've carried through the books. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, and and I like your continuity too, because when when I watch a movie, when I read a book, I look for continuity and. Uh, you don't jump around. Um, you kind of build the frame as as uh, the scene goes, and uh, to me, that that really helped me get through the book. It, it was not confusing at all because when I first read the uh, uh, synopsis, it was like, "What the heck is going? How are we going to tie this guy? This guy's a nut, you know?" I was like, "But but it really came off. I mean, it was it was good." Um, here's here's a question. Um, uh, why New York City? Why not Chicago? Why not San Diego? Um, why New York City? Well, again, um, it just happened that way. I guess the 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 opening, the big opening scene in the Last Templar was mm-hmm. the this uh, this this evening of uh, this, this opening of this huge exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum, Treasures of the Vatican. And during that exhibition where the Vatican has wheeled out all this, these things that have never been shown publicly before, four men dressed as knights, as, as Templar knights, ride up to the museum on horseback. Everyone thinks they're, they're, um, you know, they're part of the show. They storm in with their swords. They whip out machine guns and they trash the place and they grab the thing that they're there for, which is a decoder that's going to allow them to track back to the secret of the Templars. That had to take place in, in a big kind of, you know, a a a, a major modern and and you know they say write what you know. I I I I lived in New York City. I knew New York City. For me, the place to have that exhibition. I remember from from as a kid. I remember the King Tut 
exhibition hitting uh, New York City and what a massive event that was. Yeah. And of course it did travel around the US, but I just, you know, I was there and I remember the Met and all that. And so that was the image my mind conjured up. And that event happening there meant that Sean Riley was based there, which, you know, the big uh, FBI uh, counterterrorism office in New York, obviously. And, uh, and things just, you know, they just ended up based there. I've, I've even got. Uh, and, and Riley now living in Mamarnik, which is uh, a neighboring town to, to Rye, where I grew up. And I put a lot of stuff that, that harks back to, to kind of my, my time there. Huh, crazy. Um, you were, uh, earlier, you were an investment banker. Is that correct? Well, briefly, yes. Briefly. I, I, started, I started life as an architect, oddly enough. I, oh, I studied architecture. And, oh, wow. and yeah, I, 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 I loved it. For me, it was the perfect um, kind of middle ground between art and and kind of, you know, a quote-unquote serious career that my parents could get their head around. <laughs> and, um, and I loved it. I love architecture. But w- by the time I graduated and moved to Europe because of the war in Beirut, there was very, very little work here. They were shutting down architecture schools, and uh, it, it, was, it was a very, very bad time mm-hmm. um, in that field here. So I, I had to find another way to make a living. So I did a, a crash course in, in, in business and uh, went into investment banking for three years, which, which was great. It helped, you know, it paid the bills, but uh, it, it wasn't me at all. It, my persona wasn't, wasn't a, a good fit with that world at all. I hated every day of it. Mm-hmm. And um, I finally found the guts to, to walk away from it and, um, and try and do something that, you know, that I actually enjoy doing. Well, uh, which was a very, easy, very difficult decision. Everyone thought I was nuts, including my parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as you can imagine. Well, yeah, yeah. My my father was an architect, actually. Um, uh, after uh, World War II, he he uh, ended up back in Connecticut, Stamford, Connecticut, and um, he had a construction company. They did post World War II housing, um, mm-hmm. and he dropped he dropped it. Um, when he was 40, I think, he, he, he always wanted to, to be a painter, an, um, uh, you know, a gallery artist. And one, yeah. day, one day he said, the heck with this, I'm, I'm out of this business. And he started doing what he really loved. Um, sounds like he did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, well, good yeah. for him. Yes, you know, yeah. we, maybe it, 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 I think it, it's, it's, it's a huge privilege to be able to, to, um, to, to work at something you, you love doing. And uh, it's it reached a point where I literally hated waking up every morning. I, my girlfriend, who's, who's at the time was now my wife, uh, you know, told me, she was like, you, know, you, you hate your life. It, you, you, gotta, you, you can't keep doing this. Yes, it's paying the bills, but there's no point in living that way. You've got to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this, this yeah. is the same kind of story I hear over and over and over again. Baldacci, Deaver, uh, Sandra Brown, Lisa Gardner, you know, they all started off somewhere else and uh, they loved reading They, uh, as a child. Uh, you know, they loved the creative process um, and, and they just, you know, moved into this, uh, to this, to these great careers of writing. Um, how, how many books do you have out there, Raymond? I, uh, I to be honest with you, I, um, I wasn't that too familiar with your work. Um, I, I want to read more of your stuff, and I'd like to talk to you again down the road. Um, uh, uh, anytime. Uh, this, this is my sixth book. The Last Temper was the first. Yes. And uh, there have been four others, and this is uh, the, the, well, the sixth book, which is the fourth book to have um, Riley and Tess in it, yeah. uh, predominantly Riley in this one. Uh, there are two standalones. The, the second and third books were standalones. 
Um, one's called The Sanctuary, and the second one, the third book is The Sign. And then I came up with an idea for a sequel to The Last Templar, so that became The Templar Salvation. Wow. And by then, it'd been, it had been four or five years since I'd written The Last Templar, and I found I really enjoyed hanging out with Sean and Tess um, again, so I carried on with, uh, with them in The Devil's Elixir and now with Rasputin's Shadow. Wow. Is Sean Riley coming back? He is, absolutely. Uh, um, and I think the, the last sentence of, of, of the book um, throws open a, a question about the past that, uh, that we cannot leave unanswered. Um, yeah. So, yes, he is coming back. I don't know if it's going to be the next book, though. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm working on it, but uh, mm. there's a story that's very, very timely that has to do with the world we're living in right now, the kind of the anger, the, the, the unaccountability, I'd say, of uh, everything going on around us. About And um, it's, uh, it's, it's I, a story I feel needs to, to, to be told sooner rather than later. So I'm kind of feeling my way through both, and I don't know which one will will, um, huh. will end up um, being the next book. Yeah, I was going to ask you, um, uh, you, like other uh, authors I've, I've interviewed, I've asked them... Uh, do, you, do we know what the hell's going on? I mean, what is going on in the world today? It, it looks like we are just repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. I mean, there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of junk out there right now. The, the world just seems to be in a turmoil. And what do you see? What do you see happening, man? Um, you know, you, you've you've lived through. Uh, uh, a conflict as a child, um, uh, you know, you escaped a horrible, a horrible situation years ago in Beirut. Um, what, what do you see? What, what's going on in your head? You know, I think the thing that, that uh, the thing that I'm, I'm most conscious of, and I've I've put lines about this uh, kind of throughout the books. I think it's it's an ongoing. It's not the theme of the books, but it's certainly there. There there are lines here and there about this, uh, which I I feel that the the world is is going crazy with with just this notion of unaccountability. You, you can people are doing worse and worse things on a on a bigger and bigger scale, and it doesn't seem to to matter. Um, People are getting away with with bigger what what are really crimes you know whether it's, whether they're crimes against the environment or or banking crimes or crimes against uh, people's ability to to live in their homes or or crimes against um, you know people living in foreign lands or it just there seems to be a an insane amount of hubris and, and greed and um, and selflessness around. That's completely unaccountable. You know, no one, no one seems to care. And I think that's, for me, that's the the issue I see mostly that 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 um, people are getting away with everything. And um, and it, I don't know. You know, that that for me doesn't bode well at all for the world of our kids. Um, in all kinds of ways, um, the, the 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 economies are are are, are in terrible states, and yet. Um, Prices are going up. Uh, stock markets markets going up. Uh, I don't know. It's it's uh, it's it's a very bizarre state of of, uh, of the of the world. I'm, and this is what the, the, this book is about. Really, it's about well, what if there were what if there was a way yeah. for people to be made accountable? How would that change our world? What if there was a a um, um, a way for everyone on the planet to have their say in in you know if if a BP executive 
decides to save $5 million by, by putting in a substandard piece of safety equipment on an oil rig that ends up right. trashing half the Gulf of Mexico. Right. Um, and then that same company is happy to pay $10 billion, a $10 billion fine right. without blinking an eye. Yeah. Something's wrong. Yeah, it's very distressing. Uh, this is not the world that I envisioned growing up in the 50s and 60s. I, I did not see this coming. Um, of course, the 60s were a little different. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> but um, you know, I was, I was raised in a big Catholic family in New England, and I was taught to, you know, say please and thank you and open doors for women and, you know, um, yeah, yeah. and uh, have, have uh, treat everybody with, with decency, no matter who the mm-hmm. hell they are. It doesn't matter, mm-hmm. you know. Um, people are decent um, uh, by nature, I think. And, uh, but but I, this is not the world that I, that I envisioned. And uh, uh, I've got some kids, and they're, you know, uh, building families and careers, and I, I just can't imagine. If, if we keep going the way it, it's going now, I, I just can't imagine what it's going to be like in 25, 50 years. I mean, it's yeah, it's disheartening, um, and 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 you know, authors like you who write what you do, I, uh, you know, I wish more people would would eat this stuff up because it it, it is uh, it does ha- make you think, um, uh, and I think that's uh, that's what we need. We need uh, we need questions. Uh, we need people to start thinking about you know time and space. What's you know right now. Uh, and and the impact. Um, so, I don't know. I don't know who's got the answer. Um, so okay. So you said that you you may bring Sean back, um, but what else you got going on now? What else are you writing? Um, well, there's um, so there's there's what's there's, the, uh, there's you got next, a name uh, yet? <laughs> got no, a name? no. You know, I'm terrible. I'm 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 terrible with names. The names come to me like right at the end, and uh, and even then, it's like such a struggle. I, I and I always I look at other authors, you know, the names of their books. And I'm like, damn, that's such a good title, <laughs> and, I, and I'm struggling. So it's like the sign ended up as the sign, and uh, um, you know, this one I'm. I'm Pretty pleased with, I guess. That's Putin's shadow. It's, um, but no, no, no title. So yeah, Riley's coming back. There's, there's this other story I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's another story I'm, I'm intrigued by, which is an alternative history story. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've read um, Robert Harris's book Fatherland. No. Did you ever no. read that? No. So, so Fatherland is 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 set in 1964. I think it's like Hitler's 70th birthday or something like that. Oh wow! And it's and it and it posits a world where the Germans won World War II. Oh wow! So uh, Germany is the dominant country, and Hitler is still in power. And it's his 70th birthday, and there's a, a, a Gestapo detective running around uh, Berlin uh, trying to solve a string of uh, murders. Wow. And uh, gradually, he starts to, uh, to discover that um, here I am pitching Robert Harris's book. Um, <laughs> he starts to discover that, that uh, basically that the Holocaust happened, uh, which 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 no one knew about because the Germans won the war and the whole thing was was uh, was kept quiet. Um, and I, I just I just I remember reading that book and just loving the notion of an alternative history. You know, what if that happened? Yeah. Um, so I've taken there's another story I'm working on where I've taken an event of of not. That recent history, but you know, if that had happened, our world would be completely different. And I decided to take it to that conclusion. What if that had happened? It was a battle that basically you know, uh, could have could have turned the tide of a, of a major war and 
really change the dynamic uh, of, of our planet. Oh, man. Um, what I... would our world look like today? And could wow. any you know, so setting a thriller in this alternative present day? Oh, I, I love kind of because it's because it talks about our world. You know, by doing that, you you talk about the world we're living in and how yeah. it, it, it's an interesting way to make comments about. Oh, the I time like we're that. I like that. I, I think Nelson DeMille uh, wrote years ago, uh, I think it was he, he wrote a book called The Burkhardt, and it was about uh, Hitler actually not dying in the bunker, and the, the Russian KGB and the American uh, OCS was was trying to track him down. Um, yeah. And uh, they finally found <laughs> they finally found Hitler in a in a in a uh, iron cage in a basement somewhere. <laughs> it's like holy <laughs> mackerel. But but I love I love that because uh, I, I I studied uh, World War II. Um, uh, love the camps, uh, the stories. I met survivors. I know some survivors um, wow. of the camps, and uh, I've yeah. talked to a number number of authors who have uh, done uh, historical biographies on on. Uh, well, like someone like Bradley and uh, others, but uh, that that that's a great storyline, um, and uh, that's another type of book I think that will help open the minds uh, of people. You know, the what if? Uh, I love oh, I love that idea. That's fantastic. Ooh, get it to me, <laughs> get it to me. This is great. Hey, um, uh, we're we got a we got a minute left. Um, so uh, you're married now. Do you, do you have a family, Raymond? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got two daughters uh, who I love to death. Uh, this book is dedicated to my eldest daughter, who's just turned 18, and mm-hmm. she's just started her freshman year in New York. So mm-hmm. I'm actually on, we'll be going to New York in 10 days' time for Parents Weekend. And uh, Is that Mia? And, yeah, I think, sorry? Is that Mia, um, exactly. your daughter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And and then I have a 16-year-old who's still here. We still we're kind of clinging and hanging on to her. We've got her handcuffed to the to the house. She's got a chain that's only long enough to get her to school and <laughs> to her friends' houses and back. And we're not letting her go. She's not driving. She'll be yet. growing up in our basement. <laughs> in that little iron cage, I love it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Years from now, years from now, she'll make a fortune by writing her her autobiography, and they'll, they'll do a. Uh, you know, a television miniseries about I, her. It, it, it'll all pay off, but it'll, it's, it, it, she has a few tough years ahead of her. I, I survived daddy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I love it. Exactly. Aren't kids beautiful? Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, I've got three daughters yeah. and a son. Uh, my oldest is 40, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's a kick, man. It's a kick watching them grow and uh, stumble and, and uh, you know, just – just do their thing. It's it's wonderful. I'm just desperate to turn back the clock. I I, I keep saying if, if there's any way to just turn back that clock and relive these last Can't do it. 15 years because uh, they've just been awesome, and uh, it just breaks my heart to think that they're gone. I but uh, I don't know. Maybe I guess uh, grandchildren will <laughs> yeah. at some point will kind of alleviate that pain. I don't know. Yeah, I've been I've been waiting. <laughs> I'm still waiting for grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, um, Raymond, um, uh, look at great book, um, uh, Rasputin's Shadow. I I love it. Uh, it's so well tightly written. It's uh, it reads like a movie, which makes it even better. Um, I like it, and uh, I'd like to see more of you. Um, I guess we Thank can you. find uh, we can find this anywhere, right? Uh, you got it out there. Absolutely, in the world? It's, it's on sale today. Yeah. Hardcover and ebook all over the place. 
yeah. independent booksellers, ideally. Um, yeah. You know, small bookshops, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wish you all the success uh, in, um, you deserve, and uh, I, uh, I'd really like to talk to you uh, uh, at a later date, because I, uh, I think you've got a great story um, uh, of, your, of your life. Thank you. And, it would be a pleasure. Any, absolutely any time. Yeah. Any time. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, and uh, is there any way to get me a signed copy? <laughs> uh, yeah, not to absolutely. put you on the spot. <laughs> no, no, no problem at all. Um, do I? I'll get your email from. Uh, I mean, your mailing address from Alyssa. Okay, she's got and, it. Uh, she's got it. Yeah, yeah. I, I would. No, I, great pleasure. I would be honored. Um, I'm building quite a library, and I'd like to see more of your books on my shelf. Um, this is uh, this is chapter one with Greg Grasso speaking with uh, Raymond Curry, uh, an absolute brilliant writer. I, I feel. And uh, his latest book, Rasputin's Shadow, comes out today. And uh, get it ordered, folks. Raymond, thank you very much. Thank you, Greg.